stories in the Bible is the story of Nehemiah. And we're continuing, actually, from last week's lesson on Ezra. You remember Ezra had gone back to to Jerusalem. They had been taken by the Babylonians into captivity. They've been in captivity for some time now. And the Babylonians had been defeated by the Persians. And the Persian kings actually were very sympathetic to the, to the Israelites and allowed them to go back in groups to rebuild Jerusalem. And Ezra went back last week, and when he got there, he saw that they were doing some things that were just horrible, headed right back in the direction they were headed. And he got that straightened out. And this week, we're going to talk about the next person that went over, and his name is Nehemiah. But before we start, I want, I want us to just think about something for a minute. Most of us probably at some point in our life have had a, a faithful friend or an employee, employer, or a neighbor. Not just your average friend, um, employee, or neighbor, but someone that always, as they say, did right by you. Someone that always did what they said they would do. Someone who always kept their word and would always come through no matter the circumstances. Has everybody had somebody like that in your life? When there are people like that in our lives, we automatically want to show them favor because we know that we can count on them, so we show favor toward them because of their their faithfulness to us. And we find ways to bless them. We find ways to look out for their best interest. And here's something I want us to think about today. If we as fallen human beings, imperfect humans, feel this way about faithfulness toward us, how much more does God, who is holy and completely good, seek to favor his children who faithfully follow him. Nehemiah, the person we're talking about today, was a cupbearer for the great Persian king Artaxerxes. Cupbearers were some of the most trusted servants in the king's household because their job was to taste the wine before the king did, just in case somebody had poisoned it. Not a job I'd really want because there was a lot of killing of kings to take over. So probably a lot of servants died too. Of course, the servant that did this and all the servants that came before the king were to come before him with a cheery disposition. I mean, this was in a day where if if you came before a king and they just didn't like the look on your face, they'd have you killed. So even though you were coming up there to drink this, taste this wine and you might be your last thing you ever taste, you were supposed to have this cheery disposition. And the reason was any change in countenance might be viewed as something suspicious, like you're plotting something. So in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 3, I want us to read something here. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, this is Nehemiah talking, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So even though Nehemiah was supposed to maintain this cheerful countenance, because he was overwhelmed with sadness uh, over the condition of Jerusalem, He couldn't hide his feelings. So the king asked Nehemiah, why is your face so sad? You're not sick, are you? 
And he says, no. He goes, well, then the only thing that can cause that is if there's sadness in your heart. Something's really wrong. And Nehemiah had to be terrified, knowing that that could just be the, the worst mistake he ever made, to go before the king without a smile on his face. So the first thing out of his mouth was, may the king live forever. That's a good start. And then he follows up with a statement that tells of his sadness. He says, how can I be happy when the city of my ancestors lies in ruins? The gates and the walls have been destroyed and burned. I'm sorry, I, I can't be happy. Let's back up for a minute to, to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you go back to the first chapter of Nehemiah, you read that some of those who had already gone from Babylon to Jerusalem had returned. And on their return, they had told Nehemiah the condition of the city. They said the wall around the city is deplorable. It's just in rubble, laying around everywhere. And, and Nehemiah hears this, and in Nehemiah 1 and 4, this is his reaction to it. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Remember that scripture right there, because there's a lot of good stuff there. We're not going to focus mainly on this scripture, but we're going to refer back to it, because some things in there is, for several days, I mourned and fasted and prayed. He didn't just jump up and run to the, straight to the king. He prayed, he fasted, and he mourned. Until God said, this is the time, now go speak to the king. So we go back to the scene where Nehemiah is standing before the king and he's voicing his grief over the city of Jerusalem. When the king hears what is tormenting Nehemiah, he asks a question in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. What is it you want? So... To this question, Nehemiah says that he prayed, and he responds in verse 5. And I asked the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And the only thing the king asks in the following verses is, how long will it take and when will you come back? And you go, well, what's so amazing about that? Because Nehemiah is a slave. He's a servant in the household of the king of Persia. And when he asks for this, the king just says, okay, when are you coming back? Go ahead. That was the way I pictured it. The question is, do you think Nehemiah just said one of those quick prayers, Lord, help me to say the right thing? I think Nehemiah went before the king. This is my opinion. But I think Nehemiah had spent so much time in prayer and fasting before God that he went before the king in an attitude of prayer, and it was like he was already plugged in when he got there. And when, he, when the, he, the king said, what is it you want? Okay, God, we've been talking about this. Help me to say the right thing. And I think that's more. Is that what you got up? 
Okay, that's kind of the way that I picture it, it happening. And I think that just it tells us another thing. That's why we need to be in that attitude of prayer. That's why we need to, you know, the Scripture says pray without ceasing. It's not that we walk around mumbling prayers all the time. It's that we stay in that connection in prayer toward God to where when we face a situation like that, we can say, okay, God, here we go. Help me just do the right thing here. So I think that's what Nehemiah was doing when he prayed. So, But here's Nehemiah that's a servant slash slave. His people have been defeated, taken to captivity. He stands before the king of, of most everything, the known world at the time. And this is, this is funny. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Well, since he asked me, I, I just gave him a time. I told him when I'd be back. That was real big of him. But Nehemiah doesn't even stop there. He asked if he could go. The king says, sure. He asked the king then to write letters to the governors that were in the territories on his way back and telling them to leave us alone as we travel back to Jerusalem. The king says, okay. But he doesn't stop there. He says also, could you give me a letter to Asaph, who's the guy that takes care of all the king's forests? Could you give me a letter to give to him so that I can get timber to rebuild the gates and to use in the construction of the walls? The king says, sure. Why? Because Nehemiah had found favor with the king. And because he had favor with the king, the king wanted to do something in return for him. And Nehemiah knew why all of these things were granted. At the end of verse 8, he says, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. We see again that it wasn't about the goodness of Nehemiah. It wasn't about the goodness of the king. It was all because the hand of God was on Nehemiah. And that's the reason these things happen. So many times we become discouraged if we're not careful when we don't see a situation work out exactly in the timing and the way we think it should work out. But if God can move on the heart of a king, to show favor to a slave-slash-servant, to not only allow him to leave his role as a servant, but also to give him a guarantee of safe passage and resources to get the job done. And ask the servant, on top of that, when do you think you'll be back? If God can work that out, do we really need to be afraid that God can't take care of us? Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So Nehemiah makes his journey back to Jerusalem. And after he gets there, he doesn't want to call attention to what he was planning or what he was doing, so he started his inspection of the, what was left of the walls at night. And even then, he only took just a very few men with him. And the reason was, we see it later, that there was resistance to his plans, and he decided ahead of time that he wouldn't tell anyone just yet what he had in mind, Nehemiah 2, 13 through 16. By night I went out through the valley gate, toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. 
Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as of yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah didn't go all the way around the city. He only made it around the southern part. Probably, it's a very good chance that the only thing that was left of the entire walls around the city of Jerusalem was the southern part because usually when the Jerusalem was attacked, it was attacked from the north. So the northern part of the walls were probably completely devastated. So carefully, Nehemiah picks his way around the ruins of the city, examining and trying to plan for the task that's ahead of him. We see Nehemiah in the, in the middle of the night. The only light he has is the moon shining down on these broken down walls. And the only people he has with him is just a few men that are on foot. He's riding his mule. And I'm sure he was thinking, I've got to get out of here and see what I'm up against. Because this is a big task to build the walls of a city. So quietly, Nehemiah rides around what's left of the city walls, past the jackal wall, over by the dung gate. And when he gets to the fountain gate and the king's pool, the rubble was so bad and there was so much stuff just left from the walls falling down that he couldn't even get through. That's what kind of mess the walls of the city were in. There wasn't even enough room to ride his donkey through. So unable to get through the rubble, he turns around and he, he heads back a different way. I believe that he took the men with him, the few that he took, so that they could see this devastation for themselves. It's very likely that the people of the city, when they came back, they saw the walls were broken down. But after a while, it really didn't mean anything to them. They were just broken down walls. And I think he wanted to take this few hand-picked group of men and say, here's the problem. This is what we need to do. So he saw that the area in front of him was impassable, so he turns and he goes back, completes his, his observation, and goes back through the city gate, or the, where the gate used to be, that he came out of. Nehemiah now had seen what needed to be done. Now it was time to get to work. So he called a meeting. Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. At this point right here where we are with Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, it has been over 130 years that Jerusalem has been this way. Over 130 years before, Nebuchadnezzar, had come and completely destroyed the walls in the temple. And the reason that they would destroy, completely destroy the, the temple and the walls is, first of all, the temple was the most holy place that the Jews had. The walls were their security. And to devastate it completely to the ground, let them know that they were beat. You are defeated. You have nothing left. 
And Nehemiah looks at the people and he says, this is how he starts off, you see the trouble we're in here. You see the challenging task that we're facing. The walls of Jerusalem have been knocked down. The wooden gates were destroyed by fire. And I'm sure that at this point, since he's pointed it out once again, the people probably nodded their heads in agreement and said, yeah, we see it every day. They also knew that without walls for protection, they were easy targets for an enemy to attack. The rubble that lay around them served as a shameful testimony of all they had lost because of their disobedience to God. They knew why they were, those walls were knocked down. Those stories had been told, even in their captivity in Babylon, handed down through generations as to why the people had been taken in captivity. And if they didn't get it there, they got it when Ezra came over and explained it to them. So they know. And Nehemiah told the people, now it's time to put Jerusalem back to its proper state. It's time for the city to stop being an embarrassment to its people. Now here's something I want us to keep in mind. If you read through the, the book of Nehemiah, you will see that the people had tried to rebuild the wall before. But something always happened when they would go to rebuild the wall. Usually it was their neighbors that would try to persuade the king to send a decree telling them to stop. That was usually the reason they stopped. And they would just stop. Because the neighbors knew that if the walls of the city of Jerusalem were rebuilt, the city would become a mighty place as it had been in the past. So the neighbors continually whined to the king. And they were able to stop construction. So although here are the people saying, yeah, you're right, you're right, Nehemiah. And they hear the words and they're probably agreeing with him that it needs to be done. In their minds, a lot of them are probably asking, doesn't he know we've tried this before? Doesn't he realize this isn't the first time that we've got out to do this? And it's always been stopped. It was stopped by the king. We can't fight against the king. We don't even have a city. As sad as it appears, and as sad as it was, the problem was that the people had come to ex accept defeat. They had just said, we're defeated, we were taken captive, now we've got somewhat of our freedom back, but we'll never be anything more than this. And they accepted it. How do I know they accepted it? Because they've been living there for a long time, just like that. They built the temple... They built the temple, finished it, and got it everything up and going, and they dedicated the temple, and then they just kind of stopped. They said, eh, that's good enough. In response to their fears, Nehemiah tells them about his conversation with the king. And then he tells them all the things that God had provided. See, now it's different. When the people heard this, I believe that's when they rejoiced and said, let's start rebuilding. Because up until then, Nehemiah was just one more person that came along and said, let's start rebuilding these walls. The difference was that Nehemiah had found favor with the king. Nehemiah had found favor with his God. And once that was put into place, nothing was going to stop it. Nehemiah had gotten political support. Now he's rallied the people to build the wall. 
But the most important thing in all of this story is that the hand of God was in it. From the very beginning, Nehemiah had placed everything in God's hands. Remember we read back in chapter 1 where he, he fasted, he prayed, he mourned for days. He asked God for guidance and direction. And then as he came before the king, I believe he stopped and said, God, help me to say the right thing. I know this is your will. And Nehemiah remained faithful to God through all of it. He knew where his help came from. And once the building of the wall started, so here we are, he's convinced the people we have to rebuild this wall. The people say, yay, and they start building the wall. But once that happened, the neighbors came around. The neighbors from the, the territories around Jerusalem, just like they had done in the past, and they tried to discourage the Israelites. Nehemiah 2, verses 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Wow. See, they didn't know that God had shown favor to, to Nehemiah and that the king had shown favor to Nehemiah. And it wasn't like it was before. Nehemiah said that the Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem come around they start mocking and ridiculing. What are you doing? You rebelling against the king? We're going to tell. You keep doing that, we're going to tell on you. We're going to tell the king. And it worked before. But they didn't know about the favor of God that was on Nehemiah. While they tried to suggest that Nehemiah was trying to undermine the power of the king, the only thing they were worried about was their power being undermined. They didn't really care about the king. Nehemiah's response was so good. He just looked at him and said, go away. Not those exact words, but something along those lines. He said, the God of heaven will give us success. And as far as you go, we're going to rebuild this. You have no share. You have no claim. You have no historic right to Jerusalem. So now, go away. Arr. And here's an interesting thing that I, I shared with the worship team this morning. And I had never gotten this out of, out of this story before. As many times as I've read it, the, more, the higher the wall got, the more opposition they got. When they started, hang on just a second. When they started off, and that wall was just way down here, Sanballat and his buddies came around, they'd just sit back and make fun of them. You guys are so lame. This wall, 
If a fox comes over here and runs across it, it's going to fall down. So it started off with just mocking and, and making fun, and you've tried this before, and you're stupid, and that's such a mess, you'll never fix it. But when the wall got up to about right here, the opposition got a little bit more serious. And then it was like, we're going to send an emissary to the king, and we're going to come back ourselves and knock it down. And the higher the wall got, the worse the opposition was. And here's the thing. In our lives today, as we live for God, even though we maybe are, are living the, the kind of life we're supposed to and we've found favor with God and God is blessing us, I have found in my life that the closer I get to God and the higher that wall gets between me and that out there, the greater the opposition becomes. The devil will try even harder when that wall gets up a little bit higher because he gets scared. For the same reason that the Sanballat and his buddies got scared because they were afraid when that wall got up there, they wouldn't be able to beat him anymore. That's right. And the people got scared. They started complaining. They started saying things like, Nehemiah, there's too much rubble out here. We can't do this. The enemy's going to kill us. After all that God had done, after the favor that he had shown to them, as soon as a little bit of difficulty showed up, they started looking at the circumstances instead of looking at God. We do the same thing. God blesses us. He takes care of us. He heals us. He pr provides our needs. But then all of a sudden, something doesn't go just our way, and we start saying, Oh, come on, God, this is just too hard. You can't do this to me. I can't take this anymore. That's right. That's right. So here's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah didn't say, okay, quit, whatever. Nehemiah 4, verses 13. Nehemiah 4, verses 13 and 14. Therefore I stationed some of the people beyond the lowest points of the wall at exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And from that day on, if you continue reading... Verse 16 says that while half of the men built the wall, the other half stood guard. Those who carried materials, it says that they carried material in one hand and a sword in the other. Even the builders, since they were working with both hands, they still had a sword around their waist.
So with the leadership of Nehemiah, they stood firm in the task that was before them. And this time, they refused to be discouraged. There's a story that one day the devil was having a yard sale. Imagine that. And he had all of his tools out there on the driveway and had them all for sale. And they're all marked with different prices. There was a tool of hatred, a tool of jealousy, a tool of deceit, a tool of lying, pride. And they were all really expensive. But over on the other side of the yard, on display, was a tool that was a whole lot more worn than the ones that we just talked about. It was also the most expensive. The tool was labeled discouragement. And when questioned, the devil said, it's more useful than any other tool I have. When I can't bring down my victims with any other means and the rest of the tools, I use discouragement because so few people realize it belongs to me. But Nehemiah didn't get discouraged. They had started building this wall a lot of times before, and every time they got discouraged, they stopped. But Nehemiah refused to be discouraged because he knew that he had found favor with God. And he knew that when he found favor with God, that God's blessings would be upon him. He trusted God completely. And I think he took the attitude of, if God has done all of these things for me so far, he allowed me to stand before the king. He touched that king's heart to look at me and say, what's wrong, Nehemiah? You're not sick. Why do you look so sad? And then he listened. And he told me to go ahead. And he gave me provisions. He gave me protection. And here we are building it. I'm just going to believe that God's going to help me finish it. I told this story a few weeks ago, but I'll, I want to say it again because it's just, it, it's such an incredible story and it happened to me. When I went on this trip last month or in August, we had planned this trip for months and had everything all planned out. And the only thing that I really had to do between Tampa and Kinshasa in, in the Congo was to, before I got on that last plane in Ethiopia, was to make a phone call to Mundadi and tell him I'm on my way. And I get to the airport in Ethiopia, and I try to call him, and he doesn't answer the phone. And he said, you need to call me before you leave, and that way I'll know I'll be at the airport. And I immediately panicked, and I called Ruthie, and I said, you've got to get hold of Mundadi. If you don't get hold of him, when I get to Kinshasa, he's not going to be there. I'm not going to know where I am. I don't even have an address to go to. I'm going to be stuck in the middle of the Congo and don't even know where I'm going. And then my phone went dead. The battery died. And I was just freaking completely out. And something happened that has never happened in my life before. In the middle of all of this, I'm thousands of miles away from home. I don't even have, I, maybe not even a good phone number because it's not answering. And I don't even know the address where I'm headed. But I'm getting ready to get on a plane. And when the battery went dead the last time, 
It was like God spoke to me and said, do you really think I brought you this many thousands of miles to abandon you right now? And I said, no. After all these months, God, you didn't bring me here to abandon me. And I think that's why Nehemiah refused to get discouraged because when he looked back at the events that had taken place, he said God was there from the beginning. He kept me through all of that, through all the planning, through the trip back. Now we're started building these walls. It is going like God intended, and I will not be discouraged. God has placed in each of us as Christians a ministry to accomplish, task to accomplish. Maybe not a ministry in the pulpit, but nonetheless a ministry. Here's what I want us to see from the portion of Nehemiah's life that we've looked at today. If we are faithful to God, God will bring favor to our work that we do for Him. Guaranteed. If a king would show favor to another man, a servant, if a king, a man that's not even a, a godly man, if he would show favor to a servant because that servant was faithful, how much more favor will our God show when we're faithful to Him? And it's not through our ability. It wasn't through Nehemiah's ability. Philippians 4 and 13 says that I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. We can do whatever God has called us to do. But it's through the strength that He gives. And there's probably some that are listening today, maybe not here, but listening on, on the Internet or wherever, and, and you're saying, well, that's all well and good because you're saying that if I'm faithful to God, that He will show favor in my life. But the problem is, I haven't been faithful to God. Well, the good news is it's not too late. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. He will forgive us if we come to Him with a heart of repentance. And once those sins are forgiven, they are gone forever. While there is no such thing as a sea of forgetfulness mentioned in the Bible, contrary to what some people quote, it does say in the Bible that our sins are cast away from us as far as the east is from the west. That is in the Bible. Psalm 103.12. So wherever you are in your life, you can find God's favor for your life. Maybe you've, you've been living a faithful life for God. There's favor. Maybe you haven't been living a faithful life for God. There is forgiveness, and then there's favor. Nehemiah could have never accomplished the things that needed to be done on his own. Neither can we. But through, through the strength that we find only in Christ, and with the favor that comes from our faithfulness to God, we can accomplish anything that He calls us to do. God bless you.